Yeah, good morning once again, everyone, and a special welcome to you if you're visiting with us this morning. It's great to have you with us, and uh, we hope and trust that your time with us this morning will be a blessing. If you see on the front of your orders of service, the, the corner post, you'll see a diagram of the um, illustration that Ben just gave in the children's talk. Um, and uh, it was actually produced, this diagram, by one of our number, Crystal, last year um, when we had a number of baptisms. You'll see in the centre there is a Chinese character in red. It's sort of, I know it looks a little bit messy and it looks like it's melting, but it's actually the Chinese character for righteousness. And uh, the Chinese character, or the old traditional Chinese character for righteousness, is a pictogram. It means a lamb over me. Uh, which is at the centre of the cross, isn't it? It's Jesus' blood which washes away our sin and it's his righteousness that is now credited to our account. And as I read to you from Job chapter 16, I want you to keep that picture in mind um, because Job, it's very difficult to know when the book of Job was actually written. I think it's very, very old. In fact, probably the time of the patriarchs. Um, around the time of Abraham. Um, and so you've got to imagine that the, what the passage of the Bible that I'm about to read to you is, I think, at the very least, 3,000 years old, probably older. Uh, and yet, just because it's old, it's incredible to think of just how relevant and how pertinent it is in speaking directly to us today. But in particular, about how clearly I think it predicts the coming of Jesus. So I'm going to read to us from Job chapter 16 from verse 1 to verse 22, and this is God's word. Then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved. And if I refrain, it does not go away. Surely, O God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have bound me and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me. But he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, 
He pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. I've sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Deep shadows ring my eyes, yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man he pleads with God, as a man pleads for his friend. Only a few years will pass before I go on the journey of no return. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray this morning that you would speak to us through it by your Holy Spirit. Give us hearts that are discerning and minds that are keen to obey. Lord, bless us. Bless me as I speak that I would honour you and I would bring encouragement and strength to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, for those here this morning that don't believe, may you open their ears that they would hear you speaking to them through your word, that they too might come to know you, that they might know your forgiveness, your salvation, and as Ruth shared with us before from your word, your rest. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. About 15 years ago, I was in a presbytery meeting where a candidate for the ministry, a young man, was being interviewed. We were invited by the moderator, that is the chairman of the meeting, to ask the young man any question we liked. And so one of the older ministers, a good friend of mine, asked him, what issues uh, culturally, socially, are coming over the hill that do you think are going to be in your ministry, in your lifetime, the biggest threat to the gospel? It was a great question and it really made me think. This was 15 years ago. And while there were various rumblings, you might say, for change, I really couldn't put, at the time, my finger on anything in particular. John Howard's government had just enshrined marriage as being exclusively between a man and a woman into the Constitution. And so most people thought, well, at least that's safe. But how wrong they were. And while there were other what you might call progressive agendas, I really couldn't put my finger on anything specific. Fast forward to 2023, over 15 years later, and the nation of Australia is a completely different place. And I don't think anyone could have anticipated that things would change as rapidly as they did. In fact, things have changed so fast that it's almost, I think, beyond parity. 
I often think to myself, you couldn't make this stuff up. Some have said that comedy has now become prophecy. Where you might remember, if you're old enough, there was once Monty Python skits of a man wanting to become a woman. And that's no longer something to laugh about. But as we've seen in Hobart, even this week, produces deep emotion and even violence. If I could go back in time, though, and give an answer to that original question from this older minister, I think I could sum it up now in one word. Wokeness. Of course, no one would have understand, or understood what that word had meant back then, but because it's really only come in vogue of the last couple of years. But wokeness is the intellectual fruit of what has been taught at the universities for quite a number of years now, of what is formally academically known as critical race theory. It's the cultural Marxist paradigm which sees all of society as being comprised of two parts, of oppressors and victims. And this way of thinking has become so pervasive that many people don't even realise that it now shapes the way they think and act. Being woke, though, is really just a 21st century example of the transactional theology which philosophically underpinned the arguments of each one of Job's friends. It's exactly the same thing. It's the view that the good are always rewarded and the wicked are always punished. But here's the key, there is never any mercy, grace or forgiveness. For instance, today it doesn't matter how many times you say sorry. According to wokeness, you will always be an oppressor simply because of the colour of your skin or your country of birth or origin. I don't have time, obviously, to go into all of this now. Uh, I'll send something out later this week on something I've written about this. But all I want to grasp now, the point I'm simply trying to make, is that there is nothing ever really new under the sun. And that this kind of teaching or false gospel has really been around for a very, very long time. And it's really no gospel at all because it has no room for what Christopher Ash rightly calls redemptive suffering. And as such, it has no place for God's grace, no place for God's mercy, and most of all, whether it's wokeness or it's the arguments of Job's three friends, there is absolutely no place in their thinking for forgiveness, for true reconciliation. But more on that a little later. I'm going to attempt to cover quite a bit of ground this morning because we're not only going to be looking at Eliphaz's second speech to Job, we're also going to be looking at how Job himself replied in chapters 16 and 17. We're obviously not going to be able to cover every single verse, but the whole section can be, I think, pretty neatly divided into three points. The first being chapter 15, involving an accuser, that's Eliphaz. The second, an advocate in chapter 16, 
which we just read. And then finally, an appalling one in chapter 17. So an accuser, an advocate, and an appalling one. That's where we're going. Taken together, though, they outline the scandal of redemptive suffering because it completely undercuts the philosophical underpinnings of transactional theology. And it shows that what we need most of all is a divine saviour, someone whom Ruth came to see and put her trust in, who would suffer in our place and act as an advocate on her behalf. We begin then with Eliphaz's second speech to Job in chapter 15. And it's summed up, it's a position that I've summed up as an accuser. I've referred to Eliphaz before as Eliphaz the eloquent, because that's what um, he is. He's extremely skilled in his words and articulate in his speech. But as we come to what he says in chapter 15 we see that suddenly the gloves are off and it becomes a bare-knuckled fistfight. Trish uh, Smith was saying to me at staff meeting during the week that maybe we we shouldn't call him Eliphaz the Temanite. He's so cruel that maybe we should just call him Eliphaz the Termite. (laughs) Because Eliphaz just launches into Job with this extraordinary personal assault, but most of all, accusation. He just eats away at the very soul of Job. Trish is right. That's his approach. He's like, he's no better than a termite. Just as he did before, Eliphaz accuses Job of being guilty before God and as such of deserving everything that's happening to him. How cruel. By the way, I read something in a commentary this week which I thought was really helpful. I just wanted to share this with you. It said this. We might wonder why this debate between Job and his friends goes on so long. But it is part of the test. It is also part of the realism of Job's story. Real suffering rarely ends after one day or a few verses. We must keep this in mind when we go through extended periods of physical or psychological pain. And then he says, we must also keep this in mind when we attempt to comfort others. We need to realise, friends, that suffering is rarely ever over quickly. And if you expect that it will be, especially as a Christian, then you're likely to become discouraged or even disillusioned and depressed. You see, God in his sovereign power could have spoken to Job out of the whirlwind at any time and put an end to all of these speeches. There's three cycles of these speeches. We really only needed one, didn't we? I think that's what many of us would have liked to have occurred. (laughs) But God, in his wisdom, 
And this is where the promises that Ruth just made are so important, isn't it? We believe that God's word is infallible, right? God, in his wisdom, gave us so much more revelation. Because there are things here which, in his wisdom, he knew that we needed to hear. Lessons which can only be learned as you patiently persevere and walk through dark valleys. For only there can you truly appreciate the comfort that our good shepherd brings. As the Puritan Samuel Rutherford once wrote, I hang by a thread, but it is of Christ's spinning. I hang by a thread, but it is by Christ's spinning. That said, take a look at what Eliphaz says to Job in verses 2 to 16. I'll try and quickly summarise what he says, because it's just like he lands blow after blow after accusatory blow. Verses 2 and 3, Eliphaz accuses Job of not only being full of hot air, but of literally being full of our east wind. The same force of nature which killed all of his children. That's what Eliphaz says Job's speech is like. It's not only empty, it's deadly. And as if saying something like that were not bad enough, Eliphaz goes on to accuse Job of actually being a spokesman for the devil. Verse 4, But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. You see, the word for crafty here is the same word in Hebrew that is used as an adjective to describe the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So Eliphaz is saying that Job's words are exactly the same as the speech of the serpent. Job's words are crafty. The same form of craftiness which the serpent spoke to Adam and Eve back in the garden. Which is especially rich, coming from the guy who back in chapter 4 says that an evil spirit had instructed him in the middle of the night. So which person here is more influenced by Satan, Job or Eliphaz? Ironically, Eliphaz then immediately goes on to accuse Job of being guilty, just as the devil was, of pride. Verse 7, are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? Do you know what we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? I don't know about you, but everything Eliphaz is saying sounds pretty proud to me. What's more, not only did Job never claim to know more than his friends, but it's not like Eliphaz could have answered any of the accusations that he is making against Job. For example, was he privy to God's counsel when Job's situation was being discussed back in chapters 1 and 2? 
If he was, then he definitely wouldn't be saying the things that he's saying to Job right now, would he? Eliphaz is so proud, though, that he is blind to the reality of his own sin. He says in verse 11, Are God's consolations not enough for you? Words spoken gently to you? Really? As if the speeches of any of Job's friends could be characterised as words of gentle consolation. Eliphaz's mates and his mates have offered no comfort to Job at all. Every single line which Eliphaz utters is only an attempt to twist the knife in deeper and deeper still. No stone is left unturned and he completely robs Job of any spiritual comfort or hope at all. He even says to him in verse 15, If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt, who drinks up evil like water. Eliphaz's accusation is that Job is so wicked, literally so vile and corrupt, that he drinks up evil like water. With friends like these, who needs enemies? What Eliphaz accuses Job of, though, is not only cruel, but it is also profoundly mistaken. As we saw so clearly back in chapters 1 and 2, God sometimes places an enormous amount of trust in people. For, remember, it was he who suggested that Satan consider his servant Job, and not just once, but twice. And as many scholars have rightly pointed out, this was an incredibly risky thing for God to do. Because if Job had of cursed him, as Satan had said, then the Lord God could have, potentially at least, looked foolish in his heavenly court. That as Satan accused Job of doing, for not only for only worshipping God for what he all gave him, for all the blessings that he received. All of these smaller personal accusations, though, build up to the biggest accusation of all. As Eliphaz says in the second half of chapter 15, that Job is only getting what he ultimately deserves. If you skip down to verse 27 and following, you'll see that he describes Job as a kind of proverbial fat cat. The, this wealthy, morbidly obese man, bloated from the excesses stemming from his illegal riches, all of which God in his justice has suddenly decided to take away. Verse 27, Though his face is covered with fat and his waist bulges with flesh, he will inhabit ruined towns and houses where no one lives, houses crumbling to rubble. He will no longer be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the land. He will not escape the darkness. A flame will wither his shoots and the breath of God's mouth will carry him away. Now, if you were Job, how would you respond to a friend who spoke to you like this? Especially after you just lost all of your wealth all of your children, 
and you were suffering from a terminal illness and were in extreme pain. One commentator I was reading suggested that maybe verse 1 of chapter 16 should read, and then Job punched his friend Eliphaz in the face. But while it's what most of us would probably be really tempted to do, Job doesn't. And instead, Job responds with a speech of his own. The first part in chapter 16 ends with Job speaking about this enigmatic and mysterious figure I've called an advocate. And then the second part, chapter 17, describes the appalling condition Job himself is in, which I think points to the righteous sufferer who is yet to come. Throughout these two chapters, though, Job doesn't deny the reality of the pain that he is suffering. Because this is a very real and terrible ordeal. As we saw last week, what Job says, I think, is a mixture of self-righteousness on the one hand and patience on the other, of truth and error. Not everything that Job says is right, but also not everything that Job says is wrong. Because he's wrestling with both the painful reality of being rejected by his friends and seemingly by God himself. But then at the end of chapter 16, he utters these absolutely remarkable words, starting at verse 18. He says, O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Now, some commentators think that the advocate Job is referring to here might be his own cry for justice. It's the metaphorical intercession of his own personal witness. But that can't be the case, I don't think, because Job is referring to someone who is already a member of the heavenly council who is personally present there. As Job says in verse 19, Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high. And this is why people like Christopher Ash rightly argue that the advocate whom Job is referring to is almost definitely God himself. Because in Scripture... God is the one who constantly avenges the blood of those who are innocent. Like he does with Cain after, or like, rather, sorry, like he does after Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis 4. And the Lord himself says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so Christopher Ash says, Despite the scepticism of many scholars, this witness or advocate must be no less than God himself. And then he goes on to further say, Job is appealing to God against God, and in so doing foreshadows the gospel of grace 
in Jesus Christ. All of which points out to the fundamental difference between Job and the transactional theology of a friend like Eliphaz. Eliphaz and Job's other two friends believed that everything depended on us. That just like Julie Andrews sings in The Sound of Music, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. But that, the problem with what Julie Andrews and each one of Job's friends is saying is that there's no room for grace. There's no place for redemptive suffering. Because the religious system that they operate from is one which is completely reliant upon our own good works. It's about what, receiving what we do or perhaps what we do not deserve. And this way of thinking is completely antithetical to the message of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 4, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. By the mercy of God, though, Job has come to see that he cannot do anything on his own. And he definitely cannot possibly save himself. Job says in verses 15 and 17, I've sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Deep shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. It reminds you, doesn't it, of the words from the hymn, Rock of Ages? Not the labours of my hands could fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And so what Job realises then is that what he really needs is a saviour. That God might plead with God himself for his rescue and for his ultimate acquittal. Somehow or other, Job is trusting or at least pointing us to a divine advocate. A friend in heaven who is both an intercessor and a witness. Now, just exactly how Job has come to see or understand this, I don't know. It's like peering into heaven and looking into a glass dimly. But this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can see clearly, can't we, that the person whom Job is referring to is Jesus. But for Job, this is something of a spiritual mystery which the Apostle Peter says even angels longed to look into before it occurred. And this is also where our passage from Romans 8, which we read from earlier, is so helpful. Because it's not just Jesus who functions as our advocate. But even more specifically, it's the Holy Spirit. He is the gift which God the Father has lavished upon us 
when Jesus ascended into heaven. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, he helps us in our weakness. By him we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And that just as we share in Christ's sufferings, so also we share in his glory. Sometimes the Holy Spirit can be the forgotten member of the Trinity. We rightly emphasize the work of Jesus to the praise of the Father, but we forget to also recognize the current indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, especially in our connection with suffering. For there is a reason why the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter in Scripture. Because that's precisely what he brings. The comfort of God. As the Lord Jesus himself promises in John 14, 25 and following, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then Jesus goes on to say, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The irony to all of this, though, is that the comfort which the advocate brings is through the redemptive suffering of Jesus. Not the transactional theology being promulgated by Eliphaz and co., but through what chapter 17 describes as the appalling one. And this is where the real scandal of the gospel is to be found. Because the suffering of Job ultimately points to the person and work of Jesus. The righteous one who pays the penalty for the sins which we deserve. If you cast your eyes over chapter 17, you'll see that you'll hear the voice, rather, of the suffering servant as described in Isaiah. Verse 1, my spirit is broken, my days are cut short, the grave awaits me. Verse 2, surely mockers surround me, my eyes must dwell on their hostility. Verse 6, God has made me a byword to everyone, a man in whose face people spit. No wonder Job can say in verse 8, Upright men are appalled at this. The innocent are aroused against the ungodly. The scandal of redemptive suffering is that the divine advocate whom Job has just spoken about, like Job, was going to be rejected and despised. He would suffer unimaginable pain in our place. If you turn over to Isaiah 52 for a minute with me, I'll show you what I mean. Everyone is hopefully familiar with the rightly famous Isaiah 53. That's the passage which says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's one of the great passages of the Old Testament which predicts the redemptive suffering of Jesus. But just take a look at what it says at the end of chapter 52, verses 13 and 15. 
You have to remember that the Bible didn't originally have chapter headings which divided it. And so what is said here is directly linked to what is said in chapter 53. The Lord's prophet Isaiah prophesies then in verse 13, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. You see, Isaiah foretold that the promised Messiah who would save his people from their sins would suffer so terribly that people would be appalled. That's how huge his suffering for us would be. He would be beaten beyond recognition. What we say today, isn't it? Beaten to a pulp. Marred beyond human likeness. So disfigured that you would say, is that a person? Or is that, if I put this reverently, a bloody mess? That's how great the suffering of the suffering servant would be for us. And obviously this completely undercuts the self-righteous boasting which forms the basis of all transactional theology. There is no boasting in that. You don't boast in something that you're appalled at. Because our salvation is not based upon anything that we ourselves can do, but upon what Christ has done. If you haven't already heard that this morning, haven't you heard it through Ruth's testimony? You could dedicate your life morning and night, seven days a week, in some kind of monastic community, and it would never be enough. For as Isaiah says, it's only through the sprinkling of his blood that atonement can be made once and for all. What a beautiful picture that is. The work of the Lord Jesus is so infinitely precious and powerful that it just takes a sprinkling of his blood to be made clean. None of us could ever achieve that for ourselves. All of which means now that nothing can separate us from God's love. That's the truth we need to keep on being reminded of, friends, especially when we go through suffering. We need to know that because our advocate suffered in our place, because he was treated so appallingly, even though Jesus was pure and without sin, that because of this, we no longer need to fear any accusation. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Eliphaz? Satan? 
your own heart? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. He's become our advocate. And because we have such an advocate right now in heaven, nothing can separate us from God's love. As we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, transactional theology says that we have to do something to keep ourselves in God's love. What the gospel teaches us, though, is that our justification or our right standing before God is eternally secure. That we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that therefore nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's difficult not to get too carried away <laughs> with enthusiasm and, and awe at what Jesus has done. Wokeness teaches that there is no forgiveness, only a perpetual obligation to say sorry. To make endless reparations for the sins which others have done. The gospel, though, declares that in Christ it is finished. The price has been paid. Our debt has been cancelled. And everyone who has faith in Christ has been justified and set free. So don't let Satan rob you of your freedom or your joy. Because you and I now belong to Jesus. And no one can snatch us out of his hands. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. We thank you for your spirit that speaks to us through it. We thank you for the power of your salvation that rescues us from death to life. We've already seen and heard testimony of this this morning through our dear sister Ruth. But Lord, we pray that for others to come and know that new life in Christ. We pray that we would be faithful witnesses, Lord, of what you have done. Not of our own works or self-righteousness, but that we might boast in what happened to our advocate when he suffered in our place. Lord, thank you for the comfort that this brings. Thank you that nothing can now separate us from your love not sickness, not death. Lord, we uh, commit ourselves into your hands and we pray for each one of us that we would know more and more the power and the comfort that your spirit brings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to God's word.